Hello, everybody. Recording live from somewhere. Welcome to the Sickle Cycle Podcast, a monthly conversation about sickle cell disease. I'm your host, Charlotte Curtis. Thank you for joining us for our September issue. September is National Sickle Cell Awareness Month. And today we are excited to have Dr. Sophie Lanscron, who is an associate professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. And her areas of clinical expertise include hematology and sickle cell disease. Dr. Lanscron is director of the Sickle Cell Center for Adults at Johns Hopkins. Dr. Lanscron, thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for inviting me to be here. Really happy to be able to talk about sickle cell disease for Sickle Cell Awareness Month. So, Dr. Lanscron, I'm a little biased because when I first moved to the area in the DMV area, everyone told me that I had to see you as my hematologist. And so, I'm just so excited to have you on to talk about your experience, but really this is just an opportunity to for the world to hear a little bit more about your experience, your expertise, but then also um, your research and your work in terms of sickle cell disease. So how did you get started um, in this field and what made you want to become a hematologist? Those are great questions. Um, so I, I knew that I, um, I went into medicine to take care of the served and to really to help people, like that was the whole plan. Um, and then as I went through medical school, I realized that I also wanted to have my own patient cohort, people I followed throughout their lives. Um, but I'm, I'm not smart enough to be a family practice doc or an internist. They need to know everything. Um, and I discovered when I was in medical school that I really loved hematology, being able to look at a blood smear. I think they're beautiful, and, and you can make a diagnosis so simply just by looking at blood under a microscope. Um, and so I fell in love with hematology, and then when I was uh, doing my fellowship, the the person who was here before me, Dr. Sharash, who um, is the first author of the paper on hydroxyurea and ran the sickle cell clinic here at Hopkins for many years. And, and his patients loved him, and he was just an amazing person um, and did an amazing job. And I said, My, this, is, this is what I think I, I was, was put here to do. Like, this fits with what I wanted to do is really take care of patients who, who, who struggle with a really difficult disease and who I can follow over the long term and develop long-term relationships with. So it really fit with what I wanted to do. Discussing hydroxyurea, I know you mentioned it before that Johns Hopkins um, did a study on hydroxyurea. What is it? So hydroxyurea is a pretty amazing medication. It's been a medication that's been around for many, many years, many decades. Um, and was actually initially used uh, to treat some cancers, um, in particular leukemias. Um, not very good cancer drug, uh, frankly. N nobody would use it now as a primary agent for any malignancy. But it was used when there weren't a lot of options to suppress blood counts in people who had leukemia in very high counts. Um, and it was during that time period because they didn't have a lot of tests to do, that, that they recognized that it increased something called fetal hemoglobin. Um, and fetal hemoglobin is a type of, so hemoglobin is the agent that carries oxygen throughout all of our tissues. Um, people without sickle cell disease have hemoglobin A. Uh, people with sickle cell disease have hemoglobin S. 
but in fetal life, before we're all born, we all have fetal hemoglobin. And there's a switch that happens at birth that makes you make more, to make the switch and stop making fetal hemoglobin and begin to make hemoglobin A or hemoglobin S if you have sickle cell disease. And that switch is reversible. So with a medication like hydroxyurea and other medicines as well, you can actually start to increase the amount of fetal hemoglobin you make. And in the presence of fetal hemoglobin, it's harder for your hemoglobin molecules to stick together, which is what happens when you have sickle cell disease. Your hemoglobin molecules stick together and they change the shape of the red cell and cause all those downstream problems like crises and acute chest and kidney problems and all those other things that are that happen happen because your hemoglobin molecules stick together. In the presence of fetal hemoglobin, it's much harder for those hemoglobin molecules to stick together. And so they they realized that if they could turn on fetal hemoglobin with the hydroxyurea, that maybe they could decrease some of the problems that we see in people with sickle cell disease. And that's what that study showed that Dr. Sharash led um, so many years ago in the 1990s. Um, to show that hydroxyurea was really effective at decreasing the number of crises, acute chest syndromes that patients have uh, with sickle cell disease. For this so drug, oh, go ahead. Been around a long time. So, discussing this study, how many people were participating in the clinical trial, and was it hard to recruit um, participants for hydroxyurea and to test to see how it works or the implications of it on sickle cell disease patients? So I, I wasn't actually around okay. <laughs> for that study. I was still I was, uh, in medical school, sort of finishing up. Um, but, you know, there were about 300 people who were enrolled in this study. Um, and, uh, you know, I, the, the study actually... And we're, yeah, we're talking about a study that was published in, that completed in, in, is published in 1995 and led to the FDA approval of hydroxy in 1998. So it's not like we're talking about something that happened a couple of years ago. This was, this was decades ago now that we have known hydroxy works really well and that it's been available for patients to use. But unfortunately, it gets a bad rap. And why do you think that is? Oh, because it was used as a chemotherapeutic agent. I think that people are worried um, that it can cause cancer or other problems. And, and there are reasons to be concerned about some issues related to hydroxyurea. But there were two long-term follow-up studies. One was the long-term follow-up of that original study by Dr. Sharash that showed that, if anything, hydroxyurea prolonged survival. And there was no increase in cancers. Now, I don't know, maybe if somebody's on hydroxyurea for 40 years, maybe they'll be at increased risk. I don't know. But I know without hydroxyurea, they won't make it the 40 years. And so, or their life will be very different if they do. They'll have lots of complications and lots of problems. There are concerns with hydroxyurea with fertility um, that we don't understand very well and that we don't, that we need to learn a lot more about. Um, but it's possible that hydroxyurea has an effect on both men and women's ability to have children. But there's really not a lot of good data. We worry that having sickle cell disease itself may affect a woman's ability to have children. So it, if you have sickle cell disease, you know it can affect every organ of your body. That includes your heart, your lungs, your kidneys, and your ovaries. 
And so if your ovaries don't get enough blood, it's possible that that might affect your ability to have children. And so we don't know if hydroxyurea might be beneficial there or whether hydroxyurea might have also an effect on fertility because we know it can also affect the ovaries. So there's just a lot of information we don't know and, and that's why it makes it so important that people with sickle cell disease see doctors who know something about sickle cell disease so that they can have these conversations about what's the best thing for each individual. I can't say, oh, you know, everybody with sickle cell disease should be on this drug. It's not the way it works. We, we, we talk about precision medicine and everybody is different and personalizing your care and making your own personal decision about, decision about what's right for you is something, a conversation that you have to have with your doctor. So in what instances would a physician recommend hydroxyurea for a patient with sickle cell disease? So um, another great question. I recommend it, okay, for almost everybody who has a certain type of sickle cell disease. So your listeners are aware that there are uh, several different types of sickle cell disease. The most common form is hemoglobin SS, or where you get the same mutation, the S mutation from your mom, and then same S mutation from your dad, and the only thing you make is hemoglobin S. Um, that's the most common form. There are other forms like SC, where you get one mutation in S from mom and a, a C from dad. That one's considered a slightly more mild form of the disease, and the whether hydroxyurea works and how well it works in people with the SC disease is not as known or as understood as, as we know the effectiveness in people with SS disease. And so for me, almost everybody with hemoglobin SS disease or, or, or form similar as beta zero thalassemia, almost all of those people I would recommend it for. Now, um, most pediatric hematologists are recommending it for every child who has those genotypes SS or S beta zero thalassemia in infancy. So maybe even at nine months of age, they may choose to start up this medication. And the reason they do that is because it's been shown to decrease so many of the complications of the disease. What type of uh, complications has patients seen dramatic um, result in terms of taking hydroxyurea compared to not taking hydroxyurea? Decrease in crisis frequency is probably the biggest one. I've had patients tell me that it changes their lives, right? They were reluctant to start it, but then they start it. And, and keep in mind, it doesn't work immediately. It's not like a blood pressure pill that might bring your blood pressure blood pressure down in an hour. It can take three to six months to see an effect of hydroxyurea. So if you're really good about taking it every day and your doctor puts you on the right dose and increases the dose until you're at maximally tolerated dose, which is what we're supposed to do when we start people on the medication, that it really can change how often you have crisis. And, and the you know, the world for children, um, I don't know how many other people who you listen grew up before hydroxyurea with hemoglobin SS disease and had, you know, a crisis every few months and missed a week of school or two weeks of school or six months of school, or whatever, you know, the, the, the complications that they had in childhood or developed acute chest syndrome and missed a month of school, those, those can be prevented, not 100% but significantly with the use of hydroxyurea. And that's what they're seeing in kids. And we think now that the kids who are gonna grow up on hydroxyurea are gonna look very different when they get to my clinic as an adult because they won't have had uh, 
so many of the complications that they would have had without hydroxyurea. The other thing that's really important that hydroxyurea does is it increases the total blood count, so it decreases the anemia. So we, we know people do better the higher their hemoglobins are, right? They have more delivery of oxygen to their tissues, tissues like oxygen. So if my choice is to have a hemoglobin of six or hemoglobin of eight, I'm going to do whatever it takes to get that hemoglobin to eight because then those, that small change can make an enormous difference for people's organs, including their brain, brains like oxygen. What is the process for someone to take hydroxyurea um, and the dosage? And I know that varies on the person. So we typically start for the adults at 15 milligrams per kilo. Um, so usually an average Size person about a thousand milligrams a day comes in 500 milligram tablets usually so people usually start taking two pills once a day then we we you know make sure they're tolerating it okay and then check labs typically at a month after we start and monthly thereafter because we want to make sure that they're on the right dose and being on the right dose means that we suppress the white count down some to a certain level and when we're at that level and we patients have been on that level for a while, then we monitor patients every three months to make sure their counts are stable. With some of the side effects with hydroxyurea, does that apply for everyone that's on hydroxyurea or just particularly for patients with sickle cell disease? So, right, not a drug that's been studied in lots of other populations of childbearing age. (laughs) Um, Really, hydroxyurea just isn't used for very much anymore because, as I mentioned, it's just not a great chemotherapeutic drug, and there were some other diseases that it was being used for, but it's not even used very commonly for those diseases. Um, so those effects on, on fertility are probably would happen with anybody who was taking hydroxyurea. We just don't have a lot of data even in other populations. What are some other side effects? So I think the most common side effects um, is that it can cause some nausea. We usually have patients take it once a day at night before they go to bed, so they sleep through the nausea. Um, some people do notice some hair loss and some uh, fingernail or toenail changes that can make the nails a little bit darker. Um, all those tend to go away if you stop the hydroxyurea. The hair loss, too, also stops if you, if you stop the hydroxyurea. Those are uncommon side effects, but they do happen. I know that hydroxyurea is one way that patients can reduce a pain crisis, but what are some other ways outside of taking pain medicine or um, using hydroxyurea could they potentially reduce a pain a pain crisis? Sort of funny. We tell patients, oh, you know, avoid your triggers, drink lots of fluids, get enough rest, but we're all human, <laughs> and so it's hard to avoid all of our triggers. Um, And sometimes people can have a crisis without a trigger. And I think it's really important that patients don't feel guilty or like they should be blamed for having a crisis. Now, mind you, a patient who drops, you know, decides to jump into freezing cold swimming pool, probably not their best move. But for other people who, all right, you know, the baby was up all night, I'm not getting sleep, I have a crisis, not really their fault, right? It's called life. Um, and there's lots of stressors in life. For all these adults, we all know there are lots of stressors. And it's hard to avoid them, right? You know, it would be nice if we all move to Hawaii with our Mai Tais and, and avoid all the stress, but you just can't do that. And so I think it's really important for people to understand that, one, they're not to blame if they get a crisis. These things happen. This is what the, they, have, they have sickle cell disease. It's a bad disease, and it causes these things. Um, and that's one of the things 
that I try to explain to patients about hydroxyurea is I, I, I understand. You have finals coming up. You know, I cannot tell you how many times we've taken care of patients right around graduation. So stressful, right? They get through all their finals. They pass all their classes. Graduation's tomorrow. They have a crisis. Why? Because it is incredibly stressful. And the goal of treatment is so that people can have stressors and still get through their daily lives and not miss their graduation or their weddings or whatever those things are that cause stressors in their lives. That's our job. And I think it's a really different way for people to think about their disease. They're like, well, I know all my triggers. I, this is normal for me. Well, I don't want it to be normal. I want you to have stress. I don't want you to have stress in your life, but I want you to be able to get through your stress without landing in the hospital because you're having a crisis. And that's what hydroxyurea does. I, I wish I could tell you there are 12 other medications that we recommend, <laughs> but right, there's one. We also use chronic transfusion therapy. That is a very effective way of preventing crises, but it requires a lot more on the patient's part. Coming in every month, getting blood every month, it's very effective, but it requires a lot on the patient's part. So I, I think, in, in a few years, hopefully I'll, I'll have more other therapies to talk about um, that help prevent crises. At, at the moment, we have hydroxyurea and L-glutamine was approved in 2017. And it, it, it probably adds a little bit to our armamentarium of medications that we can use to decrease crises. It is not as ineffective as drug as hydroxyurea is. Um, and hydroxyurea would still be certainly considered first-line therapy. So I know that you see a lot of adult patients with sickle cell disease. Would you say the majority of the patients that come in come in because of pain crisis? Well, I'd, I'd like to see them for routine follow-up when they're doing well. <laughs> but yes, we have an, an infusion clinic uh, um, where patients can come instead of going to the emergency room for treatment of acute pain. And so we, we see a lot of acute pain. We see a lot of chronic pain. Um, there's growing data, 60 to 70% of adults with sickle cell disease, really of any type, have chronic everyday pain. This is, this is a bad disease. And, and I, you know, I, I think we don't spend a lot of time talking about this is a bad disease. And one of the things I love about my clinic is that I see people who are amazing and doing amazing things, case in point, yet still live with this really difficult disease. And, um, Right, so we we see people for lots of lots of things, but I think the most common thing is acute and chronic pain. I don't know if I mentioned this earlier, but Dr. Lanscron is my doctor um, and my hematologist. And one of the things that you brought up to me in a recent visit was the importance of me following up with a retina specialist in terms of my eyes. And as a result, there were issues there. So if I didn't follow up, I wouldn't have known. But what are some other complications that you think people don't know about or don't hear about on a regular basis? Yeah, and then they're a great question. So certainly eye disease. So there is, um, everyone should know that there are management guidelines that were published by the, um, the NIH, the National Institutes of Health. If you Google NIH sickle guidelines, they will pop up. Um, and in there are recommendations for annual screening to help prevent some complications that we worry a lot about. Um, and, and you should walk into your doctor's office with that list to make sure you're getting them done. And the key ones are eye care. We patients are at risk for losing vision due to complications from sickle cell disease. And although the changes in the retina themselves may not be completely preventable, the risk of 
losing your eyesight is. So you go to the eye doctor, they look in your eye, they look at and say, mm, there look like there are areas that are increased risk for bleeding. They treat those and they prevent vision loss. So really, everybody should be getting their eyes checked initially once a year and then whatever, how often the retinal specialist tells you you should come back. Um, but that is a key one. The loss of vision is it should not happen. It is completely preventable. The other thing that needs to be screened for is kidney disease. So we know that about 18% of people with sickle cell disease will develop what we call some protein in the urine. Um, and it can progress. Uh, well, actually, 18% can develop chronic kidney disease, and, and a percentage of those end up on dialysis. We, um, so there is a recommendation to try to identify people early who have signs of kidney disease. There is a blood test that people do in their doctor's office all the time, something called a serum creatinine. That's a measure of kidney function. But in people with sickle cell disease, you don't typically see changes in the creatinine until much later on after the kidney has suffered significant damage. And so what we do to screen people is we do a urine test and we look to see if patients are spilling protein in their urine, because it's not normal to spill protein in your urine. If we find that, it's something that we can follow, but there are also some recommendations about starting people on medication if we find that to help protect the kidney. Now, there's not a lot of great data that shows that if we do that, that it actually helps significantly prevent progression of kidney disease, but we know in other people, like people with diabetes, that if they spill protein in their urine and they're put on these medications, it makes an, a large difference in decreasing their risk of progressing to kidney failure. So really important to have your kidneys checked every year by doing a simple urine test to make sure that you're not spilling any protein. We talked about eyes, we talked about urine, we do some other screening tests for iron overload, so people who get transfused a lot need to be tested to see if they have evidence of iron overload. Also really important to intervene if that is the case. And then also routine things like getting your vaccinations, all of those things are really important. Eating a certain type of food decrease or decrease that those chances of spilling protein in your urine? Typical, usual protein intake, all that sort of stuff doesn't make a difference protein powders and all those, those can worsen your kidney function. But regular everyday sort of diet um, will not have an effect. But it's really important. One of the things, and it's a medicine we use a lot in sickle cell disease, non-steroidals, things like Motrin, ibuprofen, Aleve, Naproxen, those class of drugs, those can affect kidney function. So if we have a patient who has proteinuria, we tell them to avoid those medicines. And that can be really hard because lots of patients use those medicines to help manage their pain. So again, something else for which you need to see a, a sickle cell specialist to sort of talk about how you then manage pain if you can't take those medicines. What do you think are some of the barriers care for adults with sickle cell disease? We only have a, like an hour, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> but you, you had me thinking about it when you, you started talking about the complications and different things to look for which means that patients need to go see specialists or sometimes just follow-up appointments. And a lot of times access to care is one of the, the primary barriers to receiving quality care. Yeah, that, I mean, that's it, right? Not enough uh, adult providers are available in every corner of the U.S. to take care of people who have sickle cell disease. And this is one of my research interests and one of my passions is to try and help solve that problem. I, I think it's unforgivable that a patient would lose their eyesight because 
their doctor didn't know to recommend that they should go see an eye doctor, right? I, these things are preventable. And, and people with sickle cell disease should have access to high quality care no matter where they live. Um, and, and it's a gigantic problem and something that the sickle cell community is really working hard to try and figure out a solution to that problem. Do you think that means an increase of having more hematologists or would you just say just an increase of more knowledgeable physicians that know about sickle cell disease and know how to treat sickle cell disease? The latter. You, I don't, you don't have to be a trained hematologist to, to do this work. You have to be a trained sickle cell provider. And right, that, that means spending some time in a sickle cell center like ours or several others throughout the country um, to really learn how to do this. Um, and we are really thinking about models for how we can support people who, who don't have the hematology training, but who are in their communities. There are telementoring models of trying to help people who are interested in taking care of people with sickle cell disease become experts and to support them when they have complicated patients. You know, another thing about sickle cell disease is there isn't a strong, what we call, evidence base for what we do. It's not like a complicated patient who comes in, I can just go to a book and read about how to take care of it, because there is no such book. I have a community of, of providers like myself. When I have a complicated case, I call them up. I say, what would you do? And we do this all the time in the community of, of providers who take care of folks with sickle cell disease because we run into these issues all the time and there is no book. And so it, it is really imperative that providers out there taking care of people with sickle cell disease have the resources to be able to call me, my colleagues, and say, look, this is the case I have. What would you do? And often there's no right answer, but we can offer the support of this is what, yes, what you're doing is the right thing to do. This is what I would do in your situation. And and that trying to build that network is one of the things the sickle community is trying to do. The other piece of that Right, is if you're in a place where there isn't a sickle expert, is to become educated as much as you can for yourself and to try, look at those sickle cell management guidelines to know what screening you should be getting on an annual basis so that you come in armed with some information to your doctor's office and say, look, this is what I need to have done this year. That, you know, it's, it's unfortunate that that's the way the world works at the moment, but that's the way the world works at the moment. If the sickle cell community could focus on one issue that would eliminate the disease, what do you think that would be or should be or could be? The only way we're going to eliminate the disease or treat people who have the disease and make their lives better is if we find new therapies to do that. And the only way we're going to find new therapies to do that is to study them in research and clinical trials. And that means that people living with sickle cell disease have to participate in those clinical trials, right? I, I can't participate in a clinical trial of a new drug to treat sickle cell disease because I, I don't have sickle cell disease. So unfortunately, right, that, that's what it takes. It takes a, a leap of faith from people who have this disease to say, you know, the scientists and the doctors who've thought about this study and thought about how this drug works believe there's a possibility that it could help, not me per se, but the people who come after me. And so if there is one thing that the sickle community really needs to stand behind, it's clinical research. And it's hard because there are lots of trust issues which which are, are appropriate and there's good reason for them, um, but, but we can't, as the sickle cell providers move beyond them, 
we, we can't develop new therapies without patients participating in these clinical trials of new therapies. What are other ways that people can get involved in the sickle cell community? Um, primarily for, like for myself, I often get questions about, oh, what can I do to help a hand in the sickle cell community? And I would always automatically say, give blood. That's the easiest thing you can do. Could you tell our listeners a little bit more about the impacts of having African-Americans donate blood and why it's needed more for sickle cell patients particularly? Yeah, um, and it is a great thing to do. So when we, we use a lot of blood as, as therapy for people with sickle cell disease, um, and so in order to, to, to give blood to a patient who needs it, it has to be matched. And people with sickle cell disease are more likely to develop antibodies against other people's red cells, but if they get red cells that are more similar to them, that have the same proteins on them as theirs, then they're less likely to have a reaction to that blood. And so we have, and in particular recently, really been struggling to find enough blood that matches our patients. And we, we, we believe that people who come from the same background will have the same proteins on the surface of their red cells. And so if people who come from the same background as my patients who tend to be African-American, then hopefully we can find more blood that will be a match and it would be less of a struggle for us to find blood. We've had to postpone people's routine exchange transfusions because we're struggling to find blood products. Um, so it is becoming more and more of a problem. So if more and more of the African-American community, African-Caribbean community came and, and donated blood, that would hopefully help alleviate some of these shortages of blood products that we need for our patients. But if you have sickle cell trait, you're able to give blood? Yes, absolutely. If you have trait, you can donate blood. There are certain travel restrictions, certain diseases that you have it that you cannot donate blood. But trait is not a reason for not being able to give blood. And speaking of those living with the traits, can you tell, talk about some of the importance of their partner, the outcome of them having a child with sickle cell disease? Right. So really important uh, for people really at this point almost of any background, um, but in particular people of African heritage, uh, people from the Middle East, East Southeast Asia, um, the Caribbean or originally from uh, African descent, that, that they're the ones who are more likely to have sickle trait. And, and it's it, it really interesting, well, why, why do we still see people born with trait? Why did the trait mutation survive? Um, so sickle trait is a fascinating mutation, and it, we used to think that it occurred four separate times about 3,000 years ago that this mutation occurred, and then it, it continued on. But there was a recent paper that, that showed the possibility that it may have started once 7,000 years ago, so that there was one person born with this trait and obviously had children who also had the trait, but that the trait gene survived and got passed on from generation to generation 7,000 years ago. So think about how many generations of people had trait and passed it on to the next generation. And the reason this is so important is because trait offers a survival benefit from malaria, a disease that's still around today. So if you have sickle trait, you can still get malaria, but you're far less likely to die of malaria than if you didn't have trait. So think for a moment about how many lives the trait mutation has saved, 
right thousands, millions of lives that have been saved because of this amazing mutation. And I think that people who live with the disease and even with the tree don't think about the power of that mutation and how many lives it saved. And, and I think it's worth, worth pausing for a moment to really think about the power of that mutation. Now, right, it's a bummer if you get two of them, but if you have one, right, it, it, it has this amazing ability to save lives. So that's why the, the mutation survived all of that time and why there are people walking around who don't know they have it. So there, there is, in this country now, newborn screening. So everybody who's born gets screened for whether or not they have trait, regardless of their background. The problem is, is that if, if you have disease, then the doctor the doctors are informed and the, the parents know and everybody knows and that's different. You get treated, you, you get plugged into care right away. But if you have a trait, every state sort of communicates that to families in different ways. Sometimes it's a letter that goes in the snail mail, which may or may not get read when it hits the door. There are lots of different ways it gets communicated. And so there are a lot of people out there who have sickle trait who don't know they have sickle trait. And it is really important to get tested, especially if you're of childbearing age and you want to have children, because if you or your partner both have trait, then you are at risk of having a child with sickle cell disease. And the, it's, you know, there are lots of things to think about. If you discover that you and your partner both have trait, you can still have children. You just have a one in four chance with each pregnancy that that child will have sickle cell disease. But there are things that can be done, the pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, to, which, you know, it sort of takes the romance out of having a baby, but that you can select out embryos um, that, and, that are fertilized that you know don't have disease and then have those embryos implanted. So there are things that can be done. But even if you choose, you know you're at risk, even if you choose to have a baby the old-fashioned way, the important thing is that you know ahead of time that you're at risk of having a child with sickle cell disease. There was an amazing woman who ran the newborn screening program here in Baltimore for many years, Susan Panny, and she said, you know, getting screened isn't about sort of, you know, stopping people from having children together. It's about people being informed so that when she calls and says, you know, your child has sickle cell disease, there isn't the crying and hysteria. It's the, oh, I knew this was a possibility. Tell me what to do next. And that's what that's, it's about being informed and being informed parents and understanding what your risk is. No, I think that's so important because a lot of times, especially when I meet other sickle cell patients, they often say that they found out at birth that they had sickle cell disease or depending on how old they are, it was more so of like, no, they just had to go from doctor to doctor to doctor and then one doctor, maybe when they were 20 years old, discovered that, you know, this is... This is the reason why they were having these complications because they have sickle cell disease. So the awareness is a huge piece in terms of proper care, but just also understanding what you need to do and understanding your body as well. Right. I, now, you know, most I, it's, I, I, we occasionally get people in their 50s or 60s who don't know. They don't, it's not usually the most severe form, but often people who have hemoglobin S and C that really don't know they have sickle cell disease, right, because they have the S trait. So they have sickle trait, but they also happen to have C trait. And if you put C trait together and S trait together, you have sickle cell disease. And often, even some physicians are not aware that that is a form of sickle cell disease. Um, so it's unusual in this day and age uh, for us to run into people who don't, who, who don't know they have sickle cell disease, but still possible, especially people in their 50s and 60s. 
As a physician, what advice do you have for sickle cell patients? Okay, uh, my first is to see a sickle expert. My second is to live your life to the fullest and not let your disease prevent you from doing what you want to do and fulfilling your dreams. Um, you know, there, there are few, a few limitations, um, but for the most part, we, our, our goal is people who take care of folks with sickle cell disease is to have them live a full and complete life. And, and I, I, I'm going to limit it to those two recommendations. Well, thank you. Do you have any last words for September? National Sickle Cell Awareness Month. Nope, I'm, I'm glad this is going to get out there. Talk to your friends and family about sickle cell disease. The more awareness, um, the better off people living with this disease will be. Well, thank you, Dr. Lance Crime, for taking the opportunity to speak with us on the podcast and share your expertise, your research, and your knowledge about the disease. You're very welcome. Thank you for listening to the Sickle Cycle Podcast.